Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on Tap, we have Serenity, starring Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Diane Lane, Jason Clark, directed by Stephen Knight. And we'd like to welcome the listeners to Rise Smile Films as we unveiled the next the next cask of, of films, uh, really diving into the genre that is film noir. And we're going to be doing that by discussing the new release, Serenity, which, uh, I don't know, maybe go see it uh, or maybe just read about <laughs> what it's all about or, or listen to what we have to say about it. Yeah. But I think we have some interesting things to talk about, you know, talking about the genre in general, why it's not so common anymore, but what made it so great in its heyday. And, you know, some tropes that you'll you'll see within that that some current filmmakers still use in their films. But I'm going to hand it off to Matt before we get started. And Matt's going to give us the flight for this week. So, Jesse, in response to the film noir Gun and the Girl cast that we're now into, I thought an appropriate question this week would be chemistry on screen between actor slash actress. And we'll open it up for any genre at any time. It doesn't really matter. It could be romance. It could be comedy. It could be you take whatever you want. Because I think this is an essential component of making this specific genre work. And we'll get to why opinion-based, obviously, in just a minute. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to hear your response to the best you've seen on screen as far as the the chemistry element goes okay i'm gonna gonna have to cheat a little bit because i actually have two and i had a real hard time picking between the two okay but um the first one also cheating as well is seen throughout three films and that's going to be ethan hawk and julie delphi in the before trilogy beautiful great choice yeah before sunset before sunrise and after midnight uh richard linkletter the director you know really likes to toy around with age and how a time span in between films can you know do wonders for a relationship and you also get to see the the people grow which instead of doing it in a singular movie with makeup and effects like you let the process of aging do that for you so i think you get to see these characters who kind of just spend you know they spend a day together mm-hmm. and you know really grow to like each other and mm-hmm. you get to see that you know 10 years later and then 10 years again and after midnight where they're married they're together yeah but uh, the scene in the in the very first one, before sunrise, uh, where they're listening to to records in in the booth, the tension is so palpable. It's that will they, won't they kiss, like seal this deal, and and they don't at at, at the time. But that is such a brilliant scene with no dialogue that you know you really feel the tension and chemistry between these two characters. But then you get to see it grow in the next coming films, which I won't get too much into detail with, but. I think it's a pretty unique on-screen chemistry. That's great. I'm gonna and I have to pick. So I have to pick one more. Okay. Only because this is maybe one of the best relationships I've seen on screen in maybe the last 10, 15 years, and that's gonna be Adele Excropolis and Leah Sado in Blue Is the Warmest Color. Uh, this is a film based on a graphic novel. It's a French film. Won the Cannes uh, Film Festival, the Palme d'Or, top prize. Right. But it's a story about um, kind of sort of coming of age, but it's a girl that really 
heterosexual takes a liking to this girl, Leah Sado, who has blue hair. And it's kind of them falling in love and discovering, like, sex together. And the sex scenes are explicit, to say the least. Like, I won't get into too much detail. But it's a three-hour movie. And one half of it is them coming together and falling in love and seeing, you know, what they have in common and kind of just, like, living together. And the second half of the movie is the downfall. Mm. This just absolutely just coming apart at the seams and crumbling and I'm going to spoil it just right now. They don't end up together in the end. And it's really heartbreaking. And because I've never seen the actresses, and I've, I've seen them since then in films, it feels very real. Like, it's, it feels like a very real relationship. And, you know, it's a little bit different than, you know, ones, you know, uh, that, you know, from before sunset. But I think it's something you should seek out. It's, it's a truly beautiful film that I kind of just watched on a whim and I was very blown away by those are really two great choices mm-hmm. you might have me on this one mm-hmm. so there was a lot in contention for me here as well um some of it's probably pretty obvious like i think anything with wayne and o'hara is certainly mm-hmm. in contention um you know the rocky and adrian thing uh works mostly um but i'm also gonna cheat you a little bit here okay okay and i'm gonna give you two possibilities I'm going to go way back to The Awful Truth, okay. the original version. Mm-hmm. Cary Grant and Irene Dunn in that film play off of each other so magnificently well. I think it's a movie that a lot of people missed because everybody said Hepburn and Grant in Holiday or Bringing Up Baby or Philadelphia Story. Or pass on Bringing Up Baby. I'll oh, just... Let's not even get started on that, <laughs> right? Uh, but The Awful Truth is one that nobody... Well, I don't want to say nobody. I think got dismissed because those other three, even his girl Friday, they all had a really interesting chemistry between Grant. And I think that's the element, right? Mm-hmm. Cary Grant mm-hmm. and the people that he starred opposite, whether it you know, be Catherine Hepburn or Irene Dunn. Uh, and in this particular film, it's the early version of Hollywood's rom-com, which is marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Mm-hmm. And this movie is so brilliant because Irene Dunn maybe is Hollywood's best female treasure as yet untapped, mm-hmm. nominated multiple times, never won, mm-hmm. essentially grew up uh, cutting her chops in the industry on a showboat with her father, mm-hmm. uh, like a riverboat. Mm-hmm. She's absolutely brilliant mm-hmm. and just charming and gorgeous. And if Greta Garbo was the girl next door, she'd be Irene Dunn. Mm. And they play off each other so well. And for the chemistry in that film alone, mm-hmm. when Grant is in the final moments of their marriage and Dunn is in the final moments of their marriage and the clock is ticking mm-hmm. and the door between the two of them keeps opening and closing and opening and closing mm-hmm. and they're dealing with the Hayes Code and what was allowed in motion pictures at that time to sort of let the audience know that this is going to happen but we can't show you is mm-hmm. so masterfully done. Mm-hmm. So well done. Mm-hmm. Even more intimate probably back then because... You know, Hollywood then had these penchant for, you know, real medium shots where they occupy both parts of the screen and not necessarily like a bunch of cutting away from that shot, reverse shot. So that chemistry has to work, you know, because they both have to, you know, dominate both sides of the of the camera. Leo McCary's depiction of that sequence 
that involves a cat and then a cuckoo clock is so masterfully handled. Mm-hmm. The movie's brilliant, but it's brilliant because the two of them are completely hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yet, despite there's the the river of comedy that goes through it, it's kind of housed in a rather tragic end to a couple who is clearly still wild mm-hmm. about each other. Okay, so that's the first one. Okay. And the second one, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, is the modern-day Cary Grant to some extent, which is... Clooney. George Clooney. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with Out of Sight, okay. George Clooney, and J-Lo. Mm-hmm. I think the tension between the two of them mm-hmm. is so palpable you can't but help feel it. Yeah. From the scene in the back of the car or in the trunk with mm-hmm. his hand on her thigh where he ruins her dress and she mostly doesn't care but mm-hmm. she can't quite admit that she likes it mm-hmm. to the sequence where they sort of have to role play uh, out of towners on a business meeting mm-hmm. and the dueling stripping scene and the way that Soderbergh handles that and the way it's shot mm-hmm. is just terrific. Now, neither of the two films I mentioned are noir, yeah. but I'll give you those two to match your two. Sure. All right. Excellent. I okay. think that, that those are some good pairings, on-screen pairings. And for those of you who haven't seen Out of Sight, oh. another underrated movie, Soderbergh, based on a novel by Elmore Leonard, Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. It, Bing it, Rames. It's, it's really good. Steve Zahn. Don Cheadle. Michael Keaton. It's out. Mm-hmm. You should. You have to see this film. Mm-hmm. One of the most underrated films mm-hmm. in in Hollywood ever. Yep. Ever. Mm-hmm. The movie is so good. Yeah. Good choices. Good choices. All right. With that. Yeah. So we're going to be unveiling the cast lid for this next series of films. We will be starting with Serenity, which uh, came out uh, yesterday as of this recording. Yeah. And starring Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, and I'm gonna do a brief synopsis first, and then we're gonna and then we're gonna get into it. I'm gonna do my best not to to laugh while while I'm doing this synopsis, <laughs> if that's any indicator as oh, the direction boy. this is going. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. All right. Baker Dill is a struggling fisherman who, you know, works uh, by night. Uh, catching tunas and swordfish to pay the bills, but by day is a fisherman for hire to take wealthy people that you know on a fishing excursion. Fishing excursion, yeah. He takes them out and and lets the and lets them fish. He has a a first mate, uh, Duke, who is you know kind of kind of getting a little fed up with the the lack of um, income coming into the to this venture. And we see that in the very first scene with, you know, Baker, who's mysteriously on this quest for this elusive fish. Big tuna, I think, is is yeah. what it is. It's gigantic. And, you know, these guys that are paying him, they want to fish. But he's been after this. It's almost like Ahab and the white whale. And, yeah. I, I do think, just, and I don't want to stop your sentences, no, yeah, but I think you're off to, like, it's, it's a good start. Mm-hmm. Old Man in the Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, Captain Ahab, Moby Dick, like that, the chasing of the one that got away. Mm-hmm. I wish I could say mm-hmm. that that's going to have a lot to do with what the movie is as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. But in fact, Hitchcock would have been better suited to this a red herring in a thriller exactly. than this is in this film. Mm-hmm. Continue. Good. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, when they're not out sea, he spends his time, you know, drinking at a local bar or finding himself... Uh, with uh, Constance, Diane, uh, Diane Lane, I almost said Diane Keaton, um, Diane Lane, 
who they you know that they have their their weekly like sex sessions or daily sex sessions you know and then and then with the cat you know find 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 the cat you know well kind of know what that's a metaphor for but uh this all kind of boils to a head when at the bar he um is reunited with his ex-wife who he hasn't seen in many a year karen played by anne hathaway now karen's coming to him with an interesting proposition she she knows he's struggling she knows he misses uh, his son, Patrick. So she offers him this proposition, saying that I made a mistake, Baker. I need to rectify this mistake. My husband's abusive to me, and I can't take it anymore. Uh, he's coming tomorrow. I need you to take him out on your fishing boat, and I need you to kill him for me. If you do that, I will give you $10 million. And Baker is not quick to, to take the bait. He's still, you know, very hesitant. But... um. We are introduced uh, to this to this uh, new 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 husband, uh, Frank, played by Jason Clark, uh, modern day Claude Rains, and more on that in, in just a bit. <laughs> but we kind of get to see this this abuse at play uh, uh, later when Karen takes takes her dress off and she's got bruises and and welts and almost like burns all over her backside, yeah. and so she's she's taking quite a bit of beating. But it eventually comes to the decision that okay, he he does take the bait and he says I will I will do this for you, um, and he's gonna he's he can't convince Duke to do it. He thinks this is wrong morally, but um, you know they're gonna they're gonna have at it. So they take him out one night, uh, much to the demise of Anne Hathaway's character Karen. They return with Frank and Toe. They didn't go through with the deed. So um, at this point. Uh, Throughout this, from the beginning, there's a snarky little lawyer, who I thought was a lawyer, who's kind of following Baker all over the island, and he just misses him at least maybe three or four times. You He's... mean Noah Taylor from Vanilla Sky? Yes. Yes, exactly. Oh, wait, wrong movie. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's he's trying to hone in on Baker to, to tell him something. You know, I'm kind of thinking like... You know, custody. custody of the son, like inheritance. Like, That's what I thought yeah, too. Don't go through with this because I have money for you right here. Exactly. Okay, so he finally meets him. He has a drink with 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 Baker in his um, storage container shack, <laughs> and oh my gosh, I don't. Know. I, 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 how do how do I do this? Like we're about to go off a cliff at this very moment. He's offering him a a fish finding device to locate the big tuna, right? Like that that he's the, the elusive tuna, and as a representative of a company, yes, that we basically know nothing about other than it's a tackle company. Exactly, yeah, like a fish fish supply machinery company. What then we find out is that he's a character in a video game, almost like an item salesman. And we're currently being housed inside a video game that has been created by his son, Patrick. So now Patrick is escaping the abuse of mother and uh, uh, father by playing this fishing video Sims game that he's created and created all these characters and scenarios. And then the next bit of the movie, probably the next half, is Matthew McConaughey confusingly wandering from set to set knowing that he's like in like this virtual world and everyone starts acting weird and they have kind of like a script that they're going by and eventually they they take they take Frank out 
uh, Frank has had a bad night the night before. He was looking for the $10 ass and he had his hand broken and he's all beaten up. So he's weakened, so he can't put up a fight if they decide to throw him overboard, which, you know, they take him. And Constance's son is also on the ship to, you know, kind of confuse the plot a little bit more. Yeah. But um, the big tuna shows back up again, mm-hmm. and uh, he gives the reel to Frank, and Frank takes it. And he's just so weak and beaten up and drunk at this point that the fish just pulls him into the water, and no one bats an eye or anything. And the video game ends. We flash back to present day where we learn that Patrick, the son of Baker and Karen, um, is taking a hunting knife out of this tackle box. And he goes and he kills Frank in the real real world. And we just kind of hear the sirens and the aftermath um, after that. We do learn at that point that Baker, uh, who was uh, a soldier prior to all of this... uh, story died um in iraq mm-hmm. on during his tour of duty he's been dead this whole time and uh patrick ends up in an institution for the criminally insane with mr glass with mr class yeah and um we kind of learned that he kind of built this veil as a means to 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 spend time with the, de- the, the dad that he misses and th- then the film ends and at that point, you're really scratching your head because the first half of everything I explained follows, you know, the, a traditional story of the noir. things you'll find in a film noir. Right. <laughs> the second half of the story, I don't even know what to call it. Mm-hmm. I've never seen... Well, there, there's a little story, you know. Matt and I went to go see Iron Man 3 and kind of the same thing happened. Maybe not to such a severe an extent. But we're talking about the Mandarin and how he was essentially an actor playing the part. And we were pretty bamboozled with that and kind of disappointed, um, to say the least. This kind of was that same type of feeling where yeah. we thought we were going to get the film noir. And maybe they're going to throw him overboard. And then he comes back and like no one knows where the body is. Or like now it's a mystery and a cat and mouse. And it, it, it could go any number of which ways. No, we get this video game Matrix Shield scenario where they're acting out actions by someone on a screen on a fictitious island plymouth and i'm left to wonder what right the what is i think a very fair criticism and i'm just going to pose i think this is a rhetorical question for you okay when stephen knight sat down to write this script Mm -hmm. do you think he had any intention of the second half of this film following the course that it did i don't know i was wondering when i was watching it i was like did he have some type of medical episode or a stroke or something because i think the answer to that there's no way yeah like there's it, no way yeah that this movie mm-hmm. being advertised the way that it was in a genre that let's be frank is struggling right mm-hmm. now and has for the better part of a decade there's no way that this was a film noir housed inside a video game that truly ends up being this story. Mm-hmm. This is the story of the creation of a 10-year-old psychopath. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> super psychopath. And we'll get into that in just a minute mm-hmm. too. But before we do that, mm-hmm. let's break down noir a little bit. Okay. Uh, for a lot of our listeners, this may be something that you're unfamiliar with. But I want to draw a distinction right off the bat for what qualifies and what doesn't for me. Mm-hmm. There is crime drama and there's film noir. 
crime drama is all of the CSI stuff that's on TV, the 15 iterations or however many it is now. And essentially, I think what crime drama has done on television is kill this genre because the two have been conflated. Here's the basic idea for noir. It's a bunch of hard-boiled, fast buck, quick-talking motherfuckers mm -hmm. who are all trying to get over on each other mm -hmm. in the pursuit of A, sex, B, money. Mm -hmm. I don't know what part of that mm -hmm. is no longer palatable for audiences anymore. Mm -hmm. We like violence. Mm -hmm. We like sex. Mm -hmm. We like relatively twisty devices in a story mm -hmm. as long as they perpetuate the conflict and are not just put in the movie to just screw with the viewer. Uh -huh. All of that stuff exists in noir. And then add this to it. Mm -hmm. You take the protagonist and give him feet of clay and make him remarkably compromisable at the right price with the right woman. And you introduce the key to me. Mm -hmm. The distinction between crime drama and film noir is this right here. Mm -hmm. The femme fatale. Mm -hmm. She's going to come along with a terrible plan of some horrible circumstance that she wants him to carry out. And usually mm -hmm. it's kill my husband for money. Mm -hmm. And this to me is mm -hmm. the brilliance of noir. Yeah. If you take the role of femme fatale in a movie and you bastardize or corrupt the woman's ability to bring life into the world and use that as a tool to get your male pawn to chumpishly follow along, follow along, that is sex, mm -hmm. I'm already interested. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting dynamic that you're playing with. Mm -hmm. Add to that, she's doing it for a pretty natural state in femininity, which is I want to make sure that my offspring and myself are taken care of. Mm -hmm. Okay, Male protect. That's why we have shoulders that are bigger. Mm -hmm. Female bring life into and care for. That's why they have hips and breasts. Like it's the basic fundamental mother nature of mm -hmm. man and woman. Mm -hmm. Noir takes the parts of woman mm -hmm. and uses them in a way that's not natural and a bit twisted. You might even border on, well, evil. Mm -hmm. And chumpishly gets the male protagonist to do her bidding. Yeah. Like instead of bringing life into the world, it's to take life out for her primal function, which is enough money to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. I love that idea. Now, mm -hmm. I know people like, oh, this is very gender specific. It is. Mm -hmm. The movie, by definition, is very <clears throat> gender specific. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, mm -hmm. that idea stopped being popular. And I'm going to say, maybe also a rhetorical question, Jesse. Mm -hmm. What part of sex and violence is no longer what we like in film? I mean, I think I'm talking about... Tarantino or we Scorsese. Yeah. We, I mean, we could go on and on about people that have an entire career of that, except in noir. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, still still very relevant. And you know, I think you really hit it on on the head that I think you know the emergence of NYPD Blue, Law and Order, NCIS, yeah. CSI, procedural drama, procedural cop show drama, right. which I'm not really a fan of. Who is? Yeah. I, I know. Yeah. The, I, I know people that are okay, but. Uh, yeah, I think that kind of took could, took the sting out of it because, you know, you could get that in a 60-minute episode versus, you know, a 2-hour film. Mm. But but anyway, um some of the other characteristics you'll you'll, you'll see in, in noir in addition to what, what Matt brought up is, you know, this kind of low-key lighting scheme, yeah. which what I think in my opinion, I think film noir works best when it's black and white. 
really hard to do now because you know our audiences don't have the patience for black and white yeah maybe we'll talk about that another day but low-key lighting use of shadows Mm -hmm. the dutch camera angle some of these films even used first person pov like way before the slasher genre like popularized that that mechanism Mm -hmm. uh a narration sometimes Mm -hmm. there's a narrator or the unreliable narrator who's leading us down this path and we don't know which way he's gonna take us it was a rainy thursday night when she walked into my office (laughs) exactly my life would never be the same again yep Standard nor trope. Good. Yep. Keep going. Use of the use of the flashback. Use of a convoluted plot line, which this kind of has that, but convoluted in like a ridiculous sense. I'm talking about a convoluted plot line where multiple parties start getting involved and putting their hands in the fire, and it all comes to you know a pressure cooker element, and that's usually your last act of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the setting. I was really digging this setting in Serenity because this is like a a sea coastal dingy town for excursions only one bar whatever um you usually have usually a unique setting in these films an urban jungle is what i like to call it uh dingy factories power plants um uh fact uh, things things like that so you know those are some elements to to look for and you know you know the term film noir you know means uh black film or dark film you know used to characterize that that look in the use of shadows like when you see a film noir that uses shadows the way it does i'll use an example um the third man carol Carol reed's film very evocative use of shadows to um provide one of the best reveals i've seen in film which is harry lime orson wells in the in the the alleyway beautiful beautifully shot Mm -hmm. um so you know things like that and you know the germans were doing this in in the little film history for everybody the germans are doing this in the in the, the the tens and the twenties, uh, with German expressionist film movement, uh, if those, yeah, th- those of you that have seen films like Nosferatu, Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, M, Metropolis, right. you know, directors like Murnau and Fritz, Fritz Lang, Lang, yeah, were really popularizing this use of jagged Dutch angle, uh, the use of shadows, really evocative imagery, right? That then you know, you know through immigration movement people trying to get out of germany those those cinematographers and filmmakers came over to america found jobs in hollywood and you know i found this pretty interesting you know in my research a lot of them worked in universal's monster films Mm -hmm. dracula the mummy uh frankenstein so they started toying around with this type of filmmaking um aesthetic and then at the same time, you know, around the, this time of the Great Depression, you're getting, you know, that hard-boiled crime fiction, um, the use of, you know, authors like Dashiell Hammett, uh, who, Kane. yeah, Hammett wrote Maltese Falcon, right. Kane, Postman Always Rings Twice, right. and my favorite, and I've actually read some of his books, Raymond Chandler, Chandler. yeah, The Big Sleep, mm-hmm. and, and films like that. So you know, you take all these elements, and I think in the late 30s, early 40s is when you see this genre start to explode. You know, all, they're all coming together. You know, with the, the convoluted stories, the narrator, the femme fatale, the low key lighting, these interesting camera angles, and these interesting plots, to to say the least. But then it kind of died off. But then we can get into a whole thing with neo noir and tech noir. You know, films like Blade Runner. Fight Club, Memento, are films that evoke some of these characteristics. Not necessarily all of them, but some of them. You know, looking at like David Lynch, the Coen brothers, uh, Michael Mann, filmmakers like that, that have been influenced by this genre, like us. And um, really, you can see that in some of their work. 
this genre hits its heyday probably in the late 40s and is mostly done by the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, 60s going to fall to the emergence of um, counterculture and the anti-hero. And it becomes a little tougher, I think, even by 1960 for people to sit through a black and white film. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things historically about noir that I also love is the criminalization of woman. So World War II ends. Everybody comes home that was stationed abroad. Mm-hmm. And we come home, we being men, come home to find that the jobs that we used to do in the factories have been capably and ably handled mm-hmm. by women, not to mention raising kids at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a cliche to say that art reflects life, but I think in noir it does in this regard. Mm-hmm. When all of those jobs that men had assigned so much of their value to were capably done by the other gender, Mm -hmm. the response from Hollywood is, we have to take that and break it. Mm -hmm. We have to take her power away. And you get the creation of the dangerous woman, and they start to crop up everywhere. A bit of a gold digger that finds herself in a situation that the gold mine that she dug probably has more violence that she wanted. And we see this criminal element sort of seeping into what roles were previously mother, sister, bride, Mm -hmm. princess. And most of the early film noir roles for femme fatales Mm -hmm. were turned down. Like there's a very famous story of Barbara Stanwyck turning down Billy Wilder multiple times Mm -hmm. for double indemnity. Mm -hmm. You know, finally she said yes and thank God for that. Mm -hmm. And so with, with that, that change in the way that women were presented on screen you got a very interesting character, a new character. And I don't think that character's died out. Mm-hmm. She's just not around much mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And especially where we're in this era of science fiction, exploding science fiction movie after science fiction movie, mm-hmm. there's no room for this because it can be a slow burn. Yeah. And it's over the top, mm-hmm. wrought with silly dialogue. Mm-hmm. Why don't you get off that ticket give me a you know why don't you get up your motorcycle and give me a ticket mr officer crack me on there like if you want to see it done really well like watch double indemnity yeah and vilifying the the female role like that sounds really you know sexist in retrospect you know how they kind of treated this role but you know people like stanwick and faye dunaway and people that were in these roles you know they make the most of them and you see you see why they have to do the things that they do in these movies, why they have to manipulate because they have to create that place in society that was, you're right, it was after World War II taken back. So this is how they're they're implementing themselves in there. And, you know, and in, that, that kind of led into, you know, the 70s. And we could talk about late 60s, early 70s cinema is probably my favorite era. But, you know, that, that kind of gave way for, you know, some female protagonists that... um that that kind of emerged. I'm talking about like, you know, the Ellen Ripley's of the world and Laurie Strode, which, you know, now we're getting into horror, but you know, Well, sometimes... I'll even give I'll go even further back in time than that. Mm-hmm. I don't think Mildred Pierce is possible mm-hmm. if it's not for the creation of the femme fatale. Mm-hmm. And Joan Collins did a fine job with some noir early on, and so did Betty Davis. Mm-hmm. Also to that, yeah. all about Eve. Mm-hmm. And whatever happened to Baby Jane, I don't know if those movies yeah. are possible Sunset if it's not Bull, for the creator. Sunset Boulevard. Certainly yeah. Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Mildred Pierce is one of the most iconic female roles in all of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Historically. 
Yep. And that movie is not possible if it's not for noir. It mm-hmm. just has evolved. Yep. Yeah. It's evolved into as all things evolved throughout the decades. They all evolve. And somewhere, mm-hmm. like nineteen sixty and going forward, like you'll get an occasional Chinatown. Yeah. You'll get Body Heat. Body Heat, Black Dahlia, um, some of these other you know, and some of the basic instinct. You'll get some other ones here and there, but Essentially, I mean, okay, Jesse, mm-hmm. Hitchcock's most acclaimed work is Vertigo. Mm-hmm. It's noir. Yeah. So I just don't know when the gun and the girl yeah. became so mm-hmm. unmarketable or unmoney making audience preference area. It yeah. just makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Other than a couple pretty tragic missteps with some big directors between now and then. And here's the point I'm making on this. Mm-hmm. Stephen Knight did my genre, my personal favorite genre, yeah. no favors yesterday. Exactly. He was too cowardly. This goes back to the question mm-hmm. I asked you earlier. Mm-hmm. He was too cowardly even to see it through. In my heart of hearts, mm-hmm. I do not believe for a minute that mm-hmm. he wrote that script with the second act reversal being a video game. It's all existing in a video game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no way. Yeah. And and kind of speak of that, you know, you mentioned like film failures that lead to a genre's demise. I would argue the same thing happened to the western as well with you know peppered with you know some good stuff showing up like i'm not a big fan of unforgiven but like that movie did win oscars whatever um helping keep two of us. helping keep it alive you know the 310 to yuma remake which i think is actually pretty Brilliant. pretty pretty good yeah. but you don't see them on the regular like any anymore and then i think when you like when you have like a heaven's gate and yeah. a Lone Ranger, it, it kills the, it kills it. Like it's not bankable anymore. It to... evolves too, because what I would also say, one more, not to get too much on westerns here, yeah, yeah. But I think westerns have evolved into science fiction. Hear mm-hmm. me out on this. Sure. Science fiction and western basically hinge in the same idea: mm-hmm. an unfamiliar setting mm-hmm. with unfamiliar people. Yep. That's the base. Like, am I talking about science fiction? We're talking about westerns. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you take pure science fiction, like in the Western, the cowboy belongs to the West. Mm -hmm. So does the uh, space commander belongs in space. So my question then is, Mm -hmm. if that has found a reimagining of sorts in science fiction, why hasn't noir? Because sex, money, Mm -hmm. violence, Mm -hmm. those are much more prevalent Mm -hmm. in our society than the untamed West or our ability to go to space. It's more based in the human condition. I don't understand why this can't find a new footing yeah. in something else. And I know we talk about neo-noir. It's still noir. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I just, yeah, it's just not as common as, you know, the 40s, you know, the Asphalt Jungle, Maltese Falcon, uh, Double Indemnity. Postman, you know, Kiss it, Me Deadly, yeah. Out of the Past. Yeah. We just keep going mm-hmm. and going. In a lonely place. Uh, it's yeah, there, yeah. there's so there's there's so many ones. By the way, if you haven't seen Out of the Past, everybody, you should see Out of the Past mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Jane Greer and Robert Mitchum. Even Laura, for all the things that make Laura not noir, mm-hmm. Laura's still mostly noir. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 interesting, you know, it's part of film history and it's interesting to see, you know, how you know where we're at today and you know our our propensity right now is it's superhero films. Like that has to be the driving force driving Hollywood right now with everyone trying to do it, whether through TV, film, cinematic universes, studios. Like that's kind of that's kind of where we're at right now. But, so but, the ahead. first podcast we did, we talked about what were you most looking for for 2019. Yeah. And this was the movie that I said was my movie. Yes. 
I want to go back to something that you said in in your synopsis that is the biggest problem with this film. Mm-hmm. It's pretty difficult to take a story about a young boy, 10-ish, who's lost his dad in a war and not tug at the heartstrings of the audience. Yet this movie did a masterful job of doing exactly that. Mm -hmm. And I sat there last night thinking like, wow, what's wrong with you, Matt? This Mm -hmm. is a story about this kid who's lost his dad. How can you be this frustrated or or upset oh it, it's easy because it's 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 absolutely absurd well okay so the absurdity <laughs> yes but i mean like absurd i can still feel bad for something absurd but here's the actual thing jesse yeah that kid is pretty dislikable mm-hmm. because let's decode in the sim world that he makes of plymouth yeah the things at 10 years old yeah that he includes yeah. first of all everybody's super hard drinking mm-hmm. there's not a likable person in this movie yes secondly there's this very, and you kind of mentioned it, mm-hmm. this weird sequence on the boat when we're learning for the 50th time mm-hmm. how bad the new husband, uh, Frank, is. Mm-hmm. He's talking to um, Karen. Karen, no, no, to Duke and Baker on the boat oh, yeah. about when he gets off the boat, how he's going to go score some young, $10 ass. Young, young, young ass for $10 will take it right in the ass. Yeah. What little boy? Yeah. Writes that in because you have to remember everything that happens in that in that sequence yeah. is his simulation. So we have we have pedophilia. Like here we go. Yeah, Wait, he, hold on. He's he's coding all these sequences. Right. Yeah. He makes his mother, who by the way, the mother in the game is actually his mother in real life. Yeah. An absolute murderous whore. Mm-hmm. Who writes their mother as a murderous whore? I know. Okay, so then let's go a little bit further. Yeah. Um, the daily to weekly sex friend. That Baker gets to just get off the boat and roll over yeah. and you know knock it out of her for. 10 bucks or whatever the hell he gets. This is a 10-year-old writing this. And then finally, just murder. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, oh, you know, I don't like this kid because he's screwed up. And then he goes and murders his dad. And at that point, I'm not sure if he's any more Uh, likable than the guy that he murders. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, it's, yeah. And and again, you know, talk about... Isn't it funny, too, that the woman... The Diane Lane character, her name is Constance. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's constantly there. Yeah, exactly. And that dialogue that's just so gross, like, can you find my cat? Will you bring my cat? Cat, cat. Like, yeah, exactly. no 10-year-old yeah. uses that colloquialism in that way to code that. There's that common oh, There's that geez. common fear growing up that you don't want to walk in on your parents uh, making love. Unless you're the kid in this movie. Yeah, because he wrote... Unless you're Patrick. He writes that scene of the two of them, like, like giving it to each other on, on the boat here. And it's... Yeah. Yeah. Sans video game scenario that were introduced literally right after that scene. This is fine. This is fitting into the noir genre. We're like, man, how how is he going to kill this guy? And if he does, like, I, I'm kind of thinking, like, the ways it could play out. Yeah. He's going to come back. Like, like... There's a great French film, uh, Les Diaboliques, yep. where he comes out of the bat. Like, the, yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking, like, oh man, is he gonna come back? And he's he's gonna want that, or he's gonna Karen's gonna die, or this or that. <coughs> no, we get this Matrix ripoff, um, Sims, uh, Vanilla Sky. Oh yeah, it's it sounds absurd. It sounds absolutely absurd talking about, but this actually happens. It's, this happens. Mm-hmm. What I want, what I want is, I want a tour of Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway's new house because there's this, the only way they took this movie is because they're building like some like sprawling estate. 
Like, you you get to page 50 in the screenplay and you read that and you're like, huh? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, it's, it's interesting. Once Frank has been taken away to the depths of the ocean by the tuna, mm-hmm. we get the moment where Matthew McConaughey and his son, so the Baker and Patrick re, uh, reuniting is going to occur. It takes place on the phone. Mm-hmm. Son calls, dad in video game land and they have this discussion it should be a really heartfelt easy like as easy as like whatever animal movie is in production make sure you kill the animal to make the audience cry like it is that easy and somehow that's also screwed up because matthew mcgonaghy as frank i'm sorry as baker says nothing of significance to his son other than nobody knows what's going on and you can come into the video game with me anytime you want, son. And this is another thing that I don't understand. And we'll go fishing. Okay, but wait. So there's clearly a consistency with his ability to fish. But then this is also what I don't understand. Yeah. The son then rewrites the program to destroy the world of Plymouth Island that Matthew or that the Baker has existed in mm-hmm. so that he can rebuild it. As the exact same island, mm-hmm. so that they can go fishing in the exact same water yeah. on the exact same boat. Mm-hmm. What in the almighty hell yeah. is going on? Yeah, yeah. I literally looked at my wife and just said, "What? What are we doing? Yeah. It is such a stupid story yeah. moment. It's like a ninety degree cliff. It's like we oh. like we. It's like we drove off and went like ninety degrees, like straight down to like." like screenwriting hell does that make does that make me thelma and you louise or is that yeah exactly okay. yeah yeah we were holding hands going off this cliff mm-hmm. like we we wanted this this is what we get exactly that's why i said that we wanted this yeah. i wanted this movie mm-hmm. i was excited for this movie the trailer is noir yeah steven knight even came out and said it's a tight little fishing noir what yeah wrapped in a video game yeah let me ask you oh, this too. So, yeah. so there's this whole big tuna metaphor, and he like almost catches it at, at the beginning of the film, and then it shows up a couple times, and mm-hmm. like it's a great metaphor for like you know this kind of like distant relation, like you know. <laughs> and we're waiting for that scene, the for, one that got away. Yeah, we're waiting for that scene where he catches the fish, and then like things are repaired, whether between him and wife, but probably between him and son, and he gets to see him again. You know, at least in the, we, he could have written a code a video game scenario where we at least get to see that. Like the the big tuna fish after this reveal is not even it's not even mentioned anymore. Mm-hmm. Other than like it pulling Clark into the Frank into into the ocean. Now, I want to talk a little bit about my my viewing experience with this. So you know the movie's playing out kind of like a noir. I'm digging it. You know I'm a big McConaughey fan. I'm a big fan of the McConaughey since you know Mud, Dallas Buyers Club, True Detective, The Wolf of Wall Street. Like the guy's back. Um, I love seeing him in movies. And Anne Hathaway, you know, I was a little nervous. I was like, well, she's a she's a brunette and and she's playing like I was like that that might be it might look a little ridiculous, but I was buying her too. Like and she's got that like subtle sexy voice that she used so well in in as Catwoman in The Dark Knight Rises, that kind of seductive lure through her voice and her eyes. And um, that's all working for me. I noticed two sequences where I kind of perked up and I was like, that was a little weird. But I'll move on. When she enters the bar and sees Baker for the first time, the camera kind of does this like from the behind and then real quick juddery movements to like the front of her. Like, do, do, do. And then we're in the front. And I was like, stylistically, that was kind of weird, but okay. Then again, 
Oh, and Baker's at his uh, stored shack. Uh, Constance comes to visit him and, and she's like, do you want to wake up the kitty or whatever? He's like, no, I got to go take a bath. Or And he, so he strips naked and he runs and he jumps off the cliff to go take a bath. The camera before he jumps off does the same thing. Like, do, 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 do. And then I'm like, okay, like that's, that's bizarre. And I, in the back of my head before like the reveal was bestowed to me. I was like, that's kind of like playing video games and your your right uh, thumb controller controls the camera. And that's like kind of moving it like to the front and, the, and then the back, like like a video game character. I was like, hmm. stylistically, I was like, that doesn't really fit in this film. But like, I don't know. Then when I got to this video, I was like, that makes sense. That's Patrick controlling the camera angles of the character. Uh, but yeah, why, why? You're absolutely right. But why am I talking about all that kind of stuff in a film noir? exactly yeah that's what i was just gonna say like that's way more thought than i gave that and you're right i did notice that's kind of a weird uh, juxtaposition of three camera shots in sequence yeah yeah why yeah i think that's the biggest question you know kind of talking about this film and um is why why was that the direction that was made why was that the decision that was and we let's talk about Stephen knight a little bit here okay for those that aren't familiar with him, if you've had the opportunity to see the film Lock with Tom Hardy. Awesome. Brilliant. It's a contained little film on a, in his car phone. An hour, so good. Yeah. Brilliant performance. That's a little noir too. A little bit, yeah. yeah. But all within a car. And that, that's a brilliantly written, directed, acted film. So like, oh, okay, this guy, he's tackling like a more traditional type of approach to the noir. And, 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 this, was the, and this was the result. I'm just kind of flabbergasted. Here's here's some of the other things that Noir, or I'm sorry, that Stephen Knight has his name on. Okay. Dirty Pretty Things. Okay. Which actually, as advertised, sort of felt noirish to me the first time I watched it. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people love that movie. I don't. I don't love it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's more about people being in love with Audrey Tattoo's character from Amelie than it is the movie. But it's okay. Yeah. Um, the Girl in the Spider's Web, Eastern Promises, and then I got to it. Mm-hmm. Remember Taboo? That oh yeah, the felt insufferable yeah awful periodic fx Mm -hmm. this story sucks but we're gonna hide it behind all of these crazy set pieces and costuming like at that time every time i think of taboo i think of the the show turn Mm -hmm. that terrible show on amc Mm -hmm. that was there's literally no story but just look at all of the cool costumes we put people in yeah that taboo show was awful but that being said stephen knight's choice for this yeah he probably, I think, in my mind, is a better writer than director and totally capable. Yeah. I just don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. I want to I hear the conversation with him that talks about the creation of the story and when he came to, mm-hmm. and it's all a video game. <sighs> my God. Wait, what happened? Matt, if we were writing something and I came to this conclusion that then, okay, I was like, okay, everything we've done before, screw that. It's all set in a video game lad. I would hope you would have the sense to like knock me over the head and say, Jesse, are you insane? We're not doing that in a story with these actors. You know what I mean? Like, why are you? Okay, so this is the other thing that really troubled me. And this is just because I have literally no interest in this conflict thread. Okay. Okay, so for story to work Mm -hmm. from the earliest days on the walls of caves, Mm -hmm. it is the buildup of tension and then, in an interesting way, the release of that tension. Mm-hmm. Story is that simple. And for those of you that are 
four into this with us now, mm-hmm. you know that Jesse and I probably approach this more story story wise than anything because that's the headspace we're yeah. in. Okay, so I want conflict that makes sense, and I want it solved in a way that also makes sense but is unexpected and not convenient. And that there's nothing easy about any of that. No. I'm not trying to say that's easy. No, it's not. That's why we see probably more bad movies in a given year than excellent ones. Okay. If this movie, from the definition that we've sort of given about the creation of this boy who's the psychopath with a uh, rudimentary knowledge of, uh, you know, underage anal sex, uh, whores who are mothers, daily hookups with the town um, sugar mama, and, and the actual violence of murder, then let that be the movie. Or is this a movie about... And here it is. This is a story I have zero interest in, but mm-hmm. I'll just say it. Yeah. If this is a story about AI trying to claim sentience, <laughs> then let it be. Okay? And I will say, here's here's my problem with that. And that's, that's this is also why this doesn't work for me. Yeah. If this is a movie... Because when Matthew McConaughey, uh, Baker, yeah. figures out that he's just an algorithm and a computer program... Real quick. Doesn't he get like absolutely ridiculous... like? going forward like running around the beach like ah, after then, two bottles of rum yeah and he's like screaming on the boat when they kill me he's like ah yes. and i'm like this is schlock like yeah what's happening matthew or baker dill is trying to figure out exactly what's going on here's my problem with the whole ai sentience thing whether it's ai or 2001 a space odyssey or and I know that people are going to start throwing stuff at their at their podcast when they hear this mm-hmm. Ex Machina, which I think is super overrated, mm-hmm. okay film, super overrated. Uh, we could go on yeah. with Space Odyssey if I didn't say that. All mm-hmm. of those for me, yuck. Yeah, here's why: if the thing that is trying to become sentient is trying to find what the human condition is, you are getting. A prequel into conflict. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is conflict is created in story mm-hmm. by the sometimes inexplicable or completely explicable decisions that humans make. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to find the human condition, which is frailty and weakness mm-hmm. and temptation yeah. and sin as a robot or an algorithm, mm-hmm. it's the prequel to conflict. I don't, ready for this? I just don't fucking care. Yeah. I hate that story. It sucks. And I'm asking you this too, man. And I already mentioned this prior before. Why is that in a film? Film noir. noir. Yeah, exactly. Like that's like that's another genre. Like, and part of this problem too is probably the trailer, which sold. Oh. It, none of none of this video game BS is in the trailer. Like we kind of thought, yeah, there's the femme fatale. There's this. There's the plot. She's got, he's got to kill that. Is he going to do it? He probably will. It's going to come back to bite him in the ass. Like, we got that in the trailer. And then, like, this is thrown at us. Like, okay, so also think about this. Okay. Noirs also always have a twist built in there. And that's because after she gets the chump, the protagonist with the feet of clay, to carry out her evil bidding, mm-hmm. there's some moment where she screws him over. Mm-hmm. And that's the twist, which is either she gets away with it mm-hmm. or he figures it out. Mm-hmm. We get to that moment almost in this movie, and the twist is video game. Just keep it. The, the movie actually would have been pretty pretty reasonable, depending on how we finished the last half. Yeah. If he had just decided to keep it on Plymouth as a noir, yeah. and let the twist be what now Anne Hathaway or Karen does to Baker Dill and his response. Yeah. 
That's like maybe the, she has like maybe she has like she pulls one over on him like you know what I mean like yes. yeah that could have been yes. great instead of and then you just get traditional noir and again did Stephen Knight say I'm gonna write this story about a kid I don't know no way Jesse <laughs> no way that was it the studio said Dude, oh, we're not releasing this movie I have no unless idea. you make it more uh, AI friendly like I don't want she. I don't want Ex Machina. I don't want Space Odyssey. I don't want AI. I don't want Westworld. Yeah. I just want noir. Yeah. Let's talk about Ugh. let's talk about this real quick and then we'll wrap it up. I set it up earlier that um Jason Clark has a bit of Claude Rains complex in in Hollywood. Matt, can you tell the audience a little bit about who Claude Rains was? Claude Rains has a very remarkable career in Hollywood of being the sidekick. Here's Claude Rains in a nutshell. The first movie that Claude Rains was in, he was actually never even in. It's The Invisible Man. Right? That's his first... first. I mean, he might have done some other side, but this is his first notable... It's like, like first starring role. And he's not even in it. Yeah, he's an invisible dude. Right? <laughs> yeah. He is... And he's really good at it. Yeah, he's a great actor. Great actor. Mm -hmm. From The Wolfman to Casablanca Uh to Notorious. We can go on and on. Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia. Mm -hmm. We can go on and on and on with the roles that Claude Rains has absolutely slayed as, oh yeah, that guy. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So Jason Clark's a bit of modern day Claude Rains. He's He's the guy in that thing. Like, you know him, but like... He was in Everest, Zero Dark Thirty, <laughs> yeah. um, Terminator Genocide. Um, like, oh, and, and then he was starring in Chappaquiddick and, and Everest, but almost kind of overshadowed by like the weight of the story or all his co-stars. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of he's that guy in that you you're like I've seen that guy in that movie before, but like who is he? That's Claude Rains. That was that was his life. That was his and life. it's no knock against him. As I actually think Jason Clark's a very phenomenal actor. You and I, that makes two of us. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually looking forward to seeing him in Pet Cemetery. So maybe, maybe that's his his breakthrough. But um, but, but might... even in that, he's taken a backseat to John Lithgow of yeah. all people. Yeah, the ground up here is Estonia. <laughs> but um, yeah, let's see. You'll probably hear Claude Rain's name name mentioned many times throughout these podcasts. So we just want to give you a little uh, background on who that is. So I, my my final thought on Serenity, yeah. is for half of that movie. It checked all of the boxes that I desperately wanted it to check for hopes that this movie would find some success and breathe a little life into, I think, what can be a great genre that's just not done. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm seeing the numbers. I, there were four people, no, six people, including myself and my wife in the theater, the showing that we saw last night. It was mm-hmm. a five o'clock showing on Friday night. Yeah, uh, they're gonna they're gonna be terrible. So. I don't know if this does more harm than like maybe like the Black Dahlia did, which I would argue basically finished off what was the final ember. Traditional noir. classic noir, yeah. But boy, it, it it sure probably came close. Yeah, that that's I didn't want to come to you telling you that I wanted this to be a success. I want to see great performance, a tight, taut story, and yeah, we got far from that. And yeah, I, I I just hope, but I fear that maybe this might be the final nail in the coffin for a traditional film noir that you know that that we both like. We'll see the shreds of noir through science fiction, uh, you know, serial killer drama, whatever. But 
you know what, on film, maybe this, like, what we need, we need, like, a tight HBO 10-episode series that can tackle film noir. I think maybe that's kind of, like, the only place we're going to see it, because... What's that series that I think TNT just launched, or is getting ready to launch? I Am the Night? Something the night. I think that's based Chris on the Pine. Black Dahlia. It is. It is. You're right. So maybe there's some hope there mm-hmm. for episodic drama yeah. as far as noir. As much as we said that episodic procedural killed noir, I think that might be the place to bring it back. Maybe. Yeah. Because this. The is... problem with that though is it's on essentially network TV, mm-hmm. and I do think that's why I said HBO. Okay. Right. Okay. Fair. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that actually would help noir today mm-hmm. so back in 1950 you're still struggling with what they will allow and what they won't allow on screen so mm-hmm. a lot of it has to be done with these two people you know grasp each other in a lover's embrace and we cut to the fire and the flames roar yeah and we get it or like the the, the best is of this is in the, north the, by northwest yeah carrie grant <laughs> come on up mrs thornhill right into the top bunk of the train of yeah. the bed on the train yes and this train plows through this tunnel yeah we, we, we know what that means right yeah you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. And if you can actually play up um, the intimacy element mm-hmm. in this movie, and the violence for that matter too, mm-hmm. in some ways, this is going to sound crazy, but hear me out. Mm-hmm. In some ways, um, yeah, porn, I guess. Mm-hmm. Although not not like porn on TV, but mm-hmm. like pinup girls versus hustler. Pinup girls are better mm-hmm. to me. It's mm-hmm. like almost what's not seen is better. Mm-hmm. In film noir... I think the opposite sort of works. Mm-hmm. It can still work with what you don't see, mm-hmm. but it can work better if you don't have to be so careful about it. So when they made, remade the Postman Always Rings Twice with Nicholson and Lang, mm-hmm. and I think I actually like kind of saw that movie late one night on HBO when I probably shouldn't have been watching it. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, my goodness. <laughs> and what worked about that movie yeah. is her taking the flour and the bread and throwing it off the table. Mm-hmm. And all of that, you couldn't do that in 1950. You can take what they did like in that movie, yeah. progress it even a little bit further mm-hmm. with purpose, not mm-hmm. just to be gratuitous. Mm-hmm. And it plays even better, and not to mention what you can do with violence on top of it. Yeah. Every plot back then was essentially, let's find a way to get the insurance money. <laughs> exactly. I got to kill this person to get his insurance. And now we have much, much more to that. Exactly. And I want to say all that, like we could have all those elements, everything, the gratuitousness and the violence and the insurance money. Unless that gels in a cohesive story that makes sense and is um, coherent, it won't work. So whoever that is out there, whoever's willing to take that risk and plunge into the film noir pool, please do it because there's some stuff in there that could make for a great story. But until someone realizes that, we're going to be left with films like this. So this is a new thing that Jesse and I kind of wanted to launch right now. And so as the theme of this has a lot to do with liquor... Mm -hmm. When we get to movies that are messed up, we're going to call this sequence the Sour Mash. And this is what can we recycle from this movie or reuse going forward to make a better version of this film. So Jesse, I'm going to give you Mm -hmm. uh, the Sour Mash or the Mash bit here to start. Okay. Take what is the break point of Serenity where it goes south and fix it. Yeah. What do you got? I just don't do just don't do what you did. Don't don't make it video game like have him go through with it because that's the only way this story could have gone. He goes he takes him out the second time. Maybe he's all beaten up, maybe not. I don't care. He takes him, he falls overboard, he pushes him overboard, something. He's got a witness, Constance's kid. Maybe he throws him overboard too or has to shut him up back in town, but 
you know, I kind of like that that Le Diabolique uh, angle where like, oh, we saw a body wash up on shore. No one can find out where it went. And then it's this mystery of, oh, my God, like, where is he? Like, he's out there. He's coming back. And then, like, we give Karen, like, the comeuppance, like, it will give her that 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 thing where she's 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 a leg up on anybody and and like maybe maybe Frank kills Baker or something and and she like twists it on everyone's head and she makes off with all the money like that would be a better twist than oh yeah it's in it's in video game Sims world like what why am I talking about those words in the same sentence? Okay, so here is where i take the mash the sour mash and redo it mm-hmm. i actually love the way they kill him yeah getting pulled overboard yeah, by this fish that, that's perfect it's actually a really good death yeah the thing that you hit was the boy in the boat his name's samson mm-hmm. and that's matthew mcgonaghy's or baker's mm-hmm. weekly or daily hookup son son mm-hmm. so she is truly troubled by the emergence of anne hathaway's character in this movie and lets him know about it mm-hmm. so being that he, Samson, now is in on the plot, we have a device for Constance to see what's happening and to undo the relationship between Baker and Karen. And so as the murder happens and the two of them rush off to happy, happy, $10 million forever, hot sex and whatever this is going to be, greatness, Constance is working behind the scenes. Yeah, maybe she has the last laugh. Exactly. And she goes about undoing everything the two of them set up. Because here's the other thing that plays a lot in film noir is the role of fate. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do, fate has this predetermined outcome for you. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get there no matter what. Mm -hmm. And the, the fate is... These two are going to meet their demise in some way or, or in jail. A, it's a philosophy I have that, you know, if you commit a crime, no matter what you do, if you steal a car or if you do this, you're going to get found out. Straight ev- down the line. Eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if they kill this guy, like, there's no way they get away scot clean. There's no way. So Samson's the device to give that to Constance to have her take her revenge. Yep. On Karen because she hates her because she just stole her. Her man. Mr. Tuesday afternoon. Yep. And then in so doing, it also is the end of Baker. There you go. Those are two way better movies than like what we got. And I almost want people to go see Serenity just to kind of see the halfway point cliff dive that this film takes. Yeah. You think I'm joking when I mention that this is the plot. This is not a joke. This this happens. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. Like, it's absurd. Like, I was... I don't giggle like in movies unless like it's a comedy. I was, I was kind of, I was laughing to myself mm. at like the absurdity of it. Like, cause I was like, why is this happening? But better left, better left unsaid. So let's kind of wrap it up now. Okay. Uh, Matt, how would you rate grade serenity? <clears throat> I want to be careful about the use of rot gut because that's for the worst of the worst, the terrible, you know, the, I'd rather have set myself on fire. I walked out and asked for a refund kind of movie. I'm going to give this well, mm-hmm. maybe well minus. Okay. Simply because of the fact that the first half of the film is okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually thought up to the point when the guy shows up with the fish finder that it was a pretty solid film. And I read some of the reviews going... I just looked at the scores before I went to see it last yeah. night. And there was actually a moment right before... The fish finder part happened with the guy that basically starts to give you the um, secret that this is happening in a video game. Where I looked at my wife and I said, 
you know, this is actually really not that bad a film. And I know that it kind of got killed for the dialogue, but the Screw- dialogue's pretty appropriate for noir. Screw those critics. Kind of. Yeah. And especially because I wanted it to be good because this might, is the rebirth of the genre that I love. Yeah. And then that's the kiss of death, right? This isn't so bad. We talked about it. Yeah. You did that to me in Iron Man 3. And <laughs> curtains. So that being said, um, I actually even kind of liked the part when Anne Hathaway, Karen shows up and they're going to consummate the deal. And that's usually done through sex. And he's kind of rough with her. Yeah. And she's sort of, I guess, bent over the steering wheel or whatever that is, the countertop. Yeah. I'm not, not steering wheel. And you see that. The um, abuse. The abuse. I thought, oh my goodness, this actually, it's kind of, a, this is kind of an interesting moment. And then it all got washed away with the absurdity <laughs> of the last 50 minutes of the film. So for me, the first half is going to barely save it from being rock gut. Sure. But I'm giving it a well minus. I can never watch this movie again. Yeah. I'm furious that Knight chose to do this. Mm-hmm. He continued to wreck the genre that I love. And um, I also am a huge fan of Matthew McConaughey. Oh, uh, well minus. And that's uh, Merry Christmas. Well minus Serenity. <laughs> Happy oh. birthday, Serenity. Okay. Um. There's a there's a great Seinfeld episode where uh, uh, George Costanza's father Frank um, is trying to mask his anger and he says Serenity now and it's just like boiling it's just masking the anger and then it explodes. I was thinking that phrase through this whole movie. I'm with you. Like half of this movie, I'm I'm kind of digging. It's it's you know some of the acting's a little hollow and maybe Diane Lane whatever um and McConaughey it's 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 not maybe not his best ever but I'm I'm digging the story I'm kind of seeing like where this is going to play out and then we reach that moment that we beat to death in this podcast and the first half of that movie I would say is well call minus like almost in like in the middle of the range like it's a decent decent noir effort when we hit that moment, and I've mentioned it multiple times, why am I talking about video games, Sims, coding, BS yeah. in this story? Like, I shouldn't be. I really shouldn't be. And because of that, and I'm giggling through it, and I'm just kind of watching the actors go through, like, the absurdity of the direction this story is taken, and I'm just, like, scratching my head, you know, you know, looking at my wife, and she's like, she's like, this, this is bad. I was like, I was like, I was like, yeah, I, I know, I know. I'm watching it. I'm watching the 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 ship, the shipwreck, shipwreck, train train wreck. The last podcast. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so the first half of the movie, I'm gonna give two grades. I'm gonna cheat a little bit. I've been cheating. I've been cheating this whole podcast. I'm gonna give it a a, a call minus because I actually was digging the story, and I'm a huge McConaughey fan, just like you, and Anne Hathaway, and Jason Clark. The last half of that film, I'm going to go there because it should not have even come to this decision. The last half of the movie is total rock cut. And, you know, it belongs there with the bottom of the bells. Like, I'm with you. I probably never watch this again. Or maybe, you know, it becomes one of those movies that's so bad it's good and we can laugh for its, like, ridiculousness. But they squandered an opportunity with Academy Award winning actors to do that. Interpret that as you will, but the second half of this movie is like, is rock gut. Like, that's the only way I can describe it. For all of you that go see it, I want you to think about one thing as you're watching it. They're going to give the tune of the name justice, mm-hmm. which then would lead one to think that it will be caught and thus achieved at the end. And I'm actually going to argue mm-hmm. that justice, insofar as the end of 
the abusive stepfather happens as the tuna drives him away and justice is served. Yeah. But it's been such an arduous, preposterous, absurd, stupid story to get to that. It matters little. Very little. It doesn't matter at all, I would argue. Right. And I think that as you guys go through the film and you gals go through the film and, and watch this, I think that is an interesting approach to take because it's a colossal failure. I'm going to say this last thing before we get off into the nightcap. Okay. 2019 is not off to a good start film-wise. Boy, that's the truth. If you listen last week to Glass and, you know, <laughs> I asked my wife this. I was like, what did you like better? Did you like Glass or this? She said, oh, Glass by far. Way better. But, you know, that movie has, you know, its its, its issues too. So, you know, I, I hope February, like... Kicks it up a notch because, yeah, this this is a bad trajectory for 2019. Look, here's the truth. If the Liam Neeson action vehicle yeah. misses in February, mm-hmm. brother, we're in trouble. Yeah. Because those never miss. Mm-hmm. We all, well, mostly we love Taken. Yeah. But if that, is it called in Cold Pursuit? Yeah. Cold Pursuit. Cold Pursuit. Yeah. In Cold Pursuit. That's yeah. like the. Yeah. Um, yeah. If that film misses, oh my gosh, buckle up, guys. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want Endgame to suck and then watch watch John Wick 3 be a, pe- a piece of shit and then Star Wars 9's a colossal failure. Like I think In Cold Pursuit would be if Truman Capote directed oh, it. It's a different God. kind of thing. I, so. I, I just don't want to erase 2019 from the re- from, from, from memory. And man, like, okay, so... We're only a couple films in. Your anticipated film was Serenity, like, didn't fare too well. Like, mine was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, July release. I'm hoping that fares a little bit better. Stuff I've read on that, though, is it's slaying right now. Okay. All right. So, um, go ahead and hit me with that nightcap. So, keeping in line with the film noir theme we're going, you get one setting to write or create the neo-noir story that's yet to been told. What you got? So, recently when I talked about, you know, characteristics you find in a film noir, you have that dingy factory, boiler room, prison, like things like that. Um, the one I'd like to see it on, and you know, talking about isolation and claustrophobia, you know, you can't get away from the actions you're about to commit. I want to see a film, a neo noir film, or whatever, on a cruise ship. Hmm. Think about it. You know, seven day cruise. You can't like just jump off and like, yeah, see a see a bad scenario. Like, no, you have to be a part of it. So if there's hmm. some mistakes made along the way between femme fatale, protag, and antagonist, like. They're going to have to deal with it in a close, confined setting. And, you know, you got a casino on there and bar. Like, you oh, yeah. you could have fun with that. All the tropes you need. We've talked about... CD Jazz Lounge. Yeah, we've we've talked about the cruise setting being viable for many genres. But I think that could be pretty unique for, for, for this one. So I love it. That's I'm a, good. I'm going to go cruise ship. All right. So I'm going to go rehabilitation center for criminals who are about to do time that are strung out on drugs. So... Girl X, who has just had a terrible auto accident and is probably guilty of manslaughter, has to do a portion of her sentence getting clean in Rehabilitation Center X. Her intake nurse or caretake nurse is her unwitting pawn. And as she gets cleaner, she gets hotter. Like she shows up and she just looks beat. But as she gets cleaner, Mm -hmm. she gets hotter and it is not lost on him. Mm -hmm. This girl's not going to want to do time, Jesse. Mm-hmm. She's going to want to get clean. Mm-hmm. And the way to get clean is this guy. Yeah. 
So the two of them hatched this plan mm-hmm. to bust her out and get her away from the elements that drove her to those drugs, which are her husband. Mm-hmm. So they bust her out, which could be done at an off-site location where they have dental work done, because that actually happens in these places. Yeah. Okay, think about like Godfather with the gun behind the mm-hmm. um, toilet, keys behind the toilet. They get out, off they go. He's going to keep up his end of the bargain, having been seduced into this mm-hmm. by her, just kill her husband, ready for this. Yeah. And he shows up, and the husband's already dead. Mm-hmm. So she's, he's broke her out. He's mm-hmm. broken every law when it comes to caretaking and patience and all that sort of confidentiality, that stuff. All yeah. that stuff. He's got nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And as he shows up and the husband's already dead, the cops show up at the same time. There you go. That's great. I'd rather watch that than Serenity. Like, yeah. what the hell? I want to say one last thing about... I want to say one last thing about, about Film Noir real quick that... um. You know, for the for the role of the uh, of the woman, and you know how how she kind of fits into this genre, I do want to I do want to say, I do want to say this that um, in these films, Double Indemnity, you know, um, you know, China, all these like the female is almost smarter than the male counterpart. Not almost, she is for sure. Yeah, oh, like outwitting them to their ultimate demise or their ultimate decision and maybe she bites the bullet at the end but the role of that femme fatale she's she's always two steps ahead of everyone else and she uses that to her advantage and in the scenario you just pitted it's all that and they could have done that with the Anne Hathaway character in Serenity where she's or Constance where they're right. they're just ahead of the curve you know one step up on the male counterpart and you know they, they missed that opportunity but you know, I think that's something that, that, that you see in this genre is, you know, it playing out pretty well for that that, that, that female character. Okay. All right, everyone. That's you know, the next script we're going to have to tackle. Exactly, yeah. The devil and Mr. X, right? Yep. Here we go. So, yeah, everybody, thank you for listening to, um, you know, our breakdown of Serenity. Um, you know... You know, we would love to hear your your takes on you know best on screen chemistry or best uh, a film noir setting that hasn't been used. If you if you want to you know give us that, send us an email at ricesmileproductions at gmail and you know we'll read those off in the next podcast. You know, you know everyone's got a pretty interesting opinion. We'd love to hear what some of those are. So um, before we head out for the next week, Matt, can you let us know what we will be tackling next week? So next week, we're going to go back a little bit, but we're going to stay in the vein of film noir. And I think we've decided we're going to take a good look at Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct, yes. If you haven't seen it, it's currently on Amazon Prime right now. Mm-hmm. Take a look. You will not be disappointed. This was something I saw you know, later in my, in my years um, of film viewing, and I was thoroughly blown away by it. The impact of this film is pretty immense in that it spawned a lot of the sexual thriller. But what the other ones that preceded, whether it be Sliver or, you know, we can go on and on with the different ones, Mm -hmm. is they lost a bit of the noir element that this one fully embraced. Yet nobody at the time when the reviews were done kind of got. But I don't want to get too far into this because we've got a lot to talk about next week with this movie. I just want to argue that Catherine Trammell Mm -hmm. might be the best femme fatale in all of this genre. You might not find an argument for me. Okay. All right, listeners, thank you for, for, for joining us on, on, on this journey. I'm going to raise one up. Cheers, Matt. Cheers to you, Jesse. And we'll see you all next week with our review of Basic Instinct. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you for listening. 
to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. Serenity is property of Global Road Entertainment, Starlings Entertainment, Nebula Star, Shoebox Films, and Aviron Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. My husband is joining me here the day after tomorrow. I told him that I would charter a boat for fishing tuna. I want you to take him out on your boat. Let him get drunk. Then drop him in the ocean for the sharks. <laughs> <laughs>